I know that last week you had uh, Sean McDonnell come on by, and, and he was able to preach and give a bit of an introductory material on these beginning verses in the Gospel of Luke. And, and he took you through verses 1 through 4. Let's pray together. We'll take a look at where we left off and, and as we move forward. And really beg God that he will shape us as we really take this gospel to heart. Let's pray. Oh God, please help us. Help us as we consider the words that you have captured through your Holy Spirit for us to know Jesus. For us to know what it is to follow Jesus. For us to be shaped. To be re- completely repentant in our faith in following you and seeing your love for us that you would send your son. Oh God, I pray that none of us comes away from these pages of of the gospel that you've given us through Luke in any way, any less than a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so, you know, here, the interesting thing about the beginning of Luke's gospel is He gets to show two different sides of his personality just in the way that he writes. The first four verses, which are a little bit scholarly in tone, help to set the stage that we have a reliable scholar who has examined the events of recent history to capture for us in a way in which we can feel confident the very very gospel and events of the life of Jesus Christ. But then, after verse 4, where you left off last week, there's a noticeable shift in the way that he speaks. It's as though, uh, in the beginning, the, the first four verses, that he'd be kind of saying, kind of, if I were to kind of take the Greek and have the same flavor of an English translation, it might sound a little bit more like, inasmuch as a multitude has endeavored a compositional narrative of prophetic fulfillment in our quarters, leveraging primary source materials of reliable transmitters of an oral tradition. Their accomplishments notwithstanding, I too aspired, via due diligence, to compose an unreproachable account tailored for you, most excellent Theophilus, in order to inculcate dogmatism regarding your tutelage. And so, yo, check this out. Here's how it went down. <laughs> so like in the time of Herod, you know, he was the, he was the king of Judea. Yo, yo, man, I mean, this, is, this is, I mean, it's that much of a tone difference as we look at it. He goes from classic Attic Greek right into street Greek, right from verse four to verse five. You're like, okay, I got the preamble over with. You know I could do this if I wanted to, but nonetheless, I'm going to make this accessible to everyone so that they can hear it. And so verse 5 begins more in this street Greek fashion. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. That's kind of a big deal. Not only to be a descendant of what would be the high priestly clan, but to have a wife. So your genealogy is all secure in that. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands, decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot. Now, there would have been 24 divisions of priests and when his division came up, 
they would come up uh, for a one-week duty twice a year. But there were probably in the neighborhood of like 8,000 priests, according to census, around that time. Some have suggested as many as 24,000, 1,000 per division, or maybe 8,000, so maybe closer to like 300 or so per division. But that means then you kind of roll the dice, which means you know casting the lot, and, and if you're one of 300 or one of 1,000, you get your chance to actually go into the temple, out of the priestly court, where all the priests are helping you at this point, during the time of prayer during that week, and you get to go into the holy place, say, say, say. That's, that's a big deal. You know, it was just Yom Kippur. It was just the, uh, the, the Day of Atonement. That's the one day of a year, which was what, just yesterday, I think, uh, what was that day, Friday and yesterday, uh, was the one day a year where you go into the most holy place. We're not talking about that. That's over the top. He would never be able to have that opportunity. But to have the opportunity is like one in a thousand. It would be maybe once in a lifetime and possibly twice in a lifetime that he would have this opportunity to go and actually kind of burn the incense so that the sacrifice to the Lord is is sweet-smelling and a fragrant offering, pleasing to the Lord God Almighty in the holy place that God himself designed and showed to Moses in a model on the mountaintop, now actually ordained by God, he enters into that. Big deal. And this is, this is what, we're, what he's experiencing now. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. But by the way, um, his priestly division would have been the division of Abijah, which... I don't know if that means anything to you. It shouldn't, unless you are like the greatest, I would say biggest, the greatest Old Testament uh, trivial nerd that there is. But assuming that you're not, here's what's interesting about that. If you, if you look, and let's hope I'm enough of a nerd to remember where it was, uh, 1 Chronicles 24, and it, and it gives the list of the priestly divisions. The eighth division, you'll see in, Uh, you'll, you'll see in verse 10, it says the seventh to Hakaz, the eighth to Abijah. You know, what's interesting is not that it's the eighth division, but what division does that precede? And who is it that John the Baptist is going to precede? The next division is the ninth, which is Yeshua. Pretty cool. Either way, whether it was serendipity or God actually designed it, pretty sweet either way. Well, anyway, moving on. Then, uh, and when the time came for burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Uh, there would have been two times of prayer every day, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. The idea that there would have been a big crowd of worshipers out there suggests that we're probably talking about the 3 p.m. time of worship with a big crowd outside the temple and then kind of cheering him on as he goes in to make the sacrifice at 3 p.m. As he goes in, it says in verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. That's a good sign, by the way, that he's standing on the right side. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. John means God is gracious. In other words, God is gracious, and he has graciously 
heard your prayer and the prayer of your wife. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Let me just make a couple comments as we see this. So it's, it's kind of the, the same pattern that you hear a lot of times when an angel comes to answer a prayer on behalf of God. He often says, don't be afraid because an angel of the Lord must be such a powerful sight that any of us would be tempted to fall in worship at, at the sight of such a glorious being uh, looking like lightning I- I- itself kind of clothing human form as best we can account for from some of the other examples that we have in the Bible. But but, but as this angel, who we'll find out is Gabriel, uh, and he'll give his name in a moment, as this angel Gabriel comes before him, the same pattern, for example, that is given in Daniel 10, when Daniel is praying, and he says to Daniel, do not be afraid, for God has heard your prayer. And, and likewise, you, you have the same, same pattern that is here. Um, now, what's interesting is that Gabriel is the one who came to Daniel. And in coming to Daniel... When he came to him in that prayer, he said to him that there will be 70 weeks. And at the end of 70 weeks, you will then see the Messiah, the answer to all that you have been hoping for. 70 weeks or 490 days. Now here's something pretty interesting. From the, from the time of this announcement... And Elizabeth becomes pregnant. Zechariah's wife becomes pregnant with John. Six months later, who becomes pregnant? Mary. We'll see that in our next lesson. So six months later, Mary becomes pregnant. Ninety days, I mean, nine months later, Jesus is born from that pregnancy. So that's 15 months. And then after Jesus is born, 40 days later, he is presented at the temple. Six months plus nine months plus 40 days, guess how many days that is? 490. Pretty cool, again, if that's exactly what God meant, uh, but either way, God's pretty sweet. <laughs> and it's the same angel, the same angel Gabriel in both cases. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, it says in verse 15. That would have been something that is known as a Nazarite vow where you don't kind of shave the sides of your head and, and you never drink fermented drink. Uh, it also says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from before birth. That's interesting because in John's gospel, it tells us with regards to uh, the, the Apostle John's gospel, it says regarding John the Baptist in John chapter 10, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, yes, but in John 10, 41, it says that John the Baptist never performed a miraculous sign. And so for some to claim, well, if you're going to actually have the Holy Spirit to be filled with the Holy Spirit, well, then you need to show me a little something, something. Well, John the Baptist never did. And I don't think anybody would ever argue biblically that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit and a spirit-led man. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. I'm in verse 15. He is never to take wine or fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. 
He will, and here comes his commission, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord, that is, before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah would have no mistaking what is being said here and now. This is talk of messianic preparation. Keep your finger here and just go back about two books to the very last words of the Old Covenant. I love the way that Luke does this. He grabs the last words of the Old Covenant and then his words of the New Covenant begin right at that very turnoff point. The last verses of the Old Covenant, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, where Malachi, speaking from the perspective of the Lord, says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So, it's a good idea to turn. But notice the allusion to Elijah to prepare the way before the day of the Lord and before the Lord. And what will he do? He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and children to their parents. And here, what do we have? Gabriel telling us, he will bring back many of the people, of it, not all the people, but bring back many to the Lord. Verse 17, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness to make the people ready and prepared for the Lord. And thereby linking all of the old covenant into what is about to be fulfilled, not only through John, but of course then through Jesus. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. There's also no mistaking in the way that Luke captures this. We're not a people steeped in the Old Testament where these phrases would just kind of come ringing out at us as clear as a, a movie reference might to us, sadly. But I've got I to bring it to light so that we feel it and hear it the same way that the original audience did. This is almost word for word what Abraham said to the angel in speaking to the Lord in Genesis 15, 8. If you look at the Greek translation of the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there's a Greek translation. It's the translation that's quoted throughout Luke. When Jesus goes into the temple in a couple chapters in Nazareth and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read from it, he reads from the Greek translation. That translation is almost word for word of what Zechariah says when, when we see what uh, Abraham said. And it, Abraham says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Zechariah might think, well, I'm pretty safe saying that. Abraham said it and he's doing okay. Everything, you know, was pretty well commended to him. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. According to Jewish tradition, there were only a, a certain number, seven angels, that actually stood in the presence of God. They included Gabriel and Michael and Raphael and a few others. 
um, that, that are just traditional names, but he would have been one of that kind of inner circle of God's servants, of the angels. The same Gabriel, again, who came to Daniel in Daniel chapters 9 and 10. I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this gospel, this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appropriate appointed time. In other words, you want a sign? Here's your sign. <laughs> Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, but he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. It's likely, based on a, a later passage that we'll have in this chapter, that he was not only not able to speak, but he was not able to hear as well. Uh, we know this because later on, when he's making signs to the people, the people begin making signs to him. Now, it could be empathy. When I was a little kid, I had um, gotten hit in the throat and I couldn't speak. And my mom came home and she always keeps this manila pad because my brother, who was trying to take care of me while I was home uh, during that time of, of healing, I, like, I couldn't speak at all, um, I, would, I would write notes to him saying, hey, would you mind you know, going and you know, getting me some soup? And then, and then uh, my mom picked up the pad later that day and she sees on the pad me writing, hey, would you mind getting me some soup? And then she sees written under it, no, I'll get it for you. And then written under that, you idiot, I can hear, I just can't talk. <laughs> I was hurt, okay? It was a hard time for me. I was a little kid, I was scared, I couldn't speak. And I was a jerk, too. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I always laugh about that encounter that I think you're just so empathetic to people that can't speak that you, know, you, you tend to write because they're writing to you as well. That may have been the case, or it may have been the case that he actually could not hear as well. Uh, anyway, moving on. <laughs> Verse 23. When his time of service was completed, Zechariah, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. I'm going to do a little bit of a tangent here on teaching, and I'm just going to hit the central point, but I'm going to show you how we find the central point when you're trying to really wrestle with a, a piece of text. Uh, in, in today, when we, when we have... Um, any sort of communication, we have in our mind that there will be an introduction, whether this is a paper you have to write for school or whether you're listening to a sermon, whatever it might be, you have in your mind an organization and, and you start filling in the buckets in your mind's eye, right? Like, okay, he's done with the conclusion. How much longer do I have to sit here? He hasn't said point one yet. This thing is going on, right? All this is going on in your head, probably even right now as, as, you, as you sit here. You know, point two is coming around, like, okay, I think I've made it so far, my stomach's grumbling. Point three, hallelujah, whoa, it's a long point. When's the, oh, the conclusion, praise God. And you have a sense of closure at that point. That is not the way they had that sense in the first century, because they didn't actually use that sort of a linear fashion. They used something that you could think of as kind of like concentric circles, 
or kind of envelopes inside of envelopes, or the more technical word is inclusio. In other words, they include what is in the beginning at the end, or to even be more technical, uh, chiastic structure. Inclusio, chiastic, whatever it is, it's kind of like what you say in the beginning, you're going to say later. What you say next, you're going to say second to last. What you say third, you're going to say third to last. And then once you get to the center part, that's kind of the kernel of emphasis that that passage, that that writer intended for us to take on home. So let's look at this passage, not in today's fashion of communication, but in the way that it would have happened then. So in, in 60 AD, when uh, Luke is writing this, this would have actually been more likely the, the, the approach to this. That's all that junk I was just saying a second ago. Inclusio, etc. So let's look at this passage. If we, if we look at the first thing that is talked about, it talks about in, in the day, in the day of King Herod, here's the situation. Zechariah and Elizabeth were childless, and there's a disgrace that goes with that. Not really, though. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm just going to side point here while I'm on this. The, the idea of this disgrace would have, would have simply come about only because in the Old Testament, um, there were a couple passages that, that speak. For example, in Leviticus 20.20, there's a curse given to someone who actually sleeps with a close relative. And in that curse, it says they will die childless in both Leviticus 20 and 21. Psalms 127 and 128 are beautiful psalms. They're psalms of ascent. They're songs, they would have been songs familiar that they would have all sang as they walked up to Jerusalem three times a year. So it would be a song close to their heart. Both of those songs, or psalms, 127 and 128, talk about kids being a blessing. They usually are. Uh, Psalm 127 speaks that when you have a lot of children, it's like having a quiver full of arrows. Psalm 128 speaks about your wife being blessed and she'll be like a fruitful vine and your kids will be like olive shoots around your table and what a blessing that will be. Well, because of that data in the Bible, to not have a child, people would kind of look at you a bit askance and think, is there some sort of divine uh, defiance going on against you right now because of something going on in your life? Now, we see over and over again that God busts up that preconception. Abraham and Sarah without child, but in Genesis 18, they're all the more inspirational because they have the child of, um, of, of Isaac. Uh, uh, Manoah and Samson's mom are without child and they're quite grieved, but in Judges 13, God blesses them with Samson. Uh, Hannah and Elkanah are without child in 1 Samuel 1, and ultimately they are blessed even in their old age with the child Samuel. It happened, Rebecca, uh, Rachel, you see it over and over again where woman, women that are, are righteous before the Lord are, are being viewed by society in a way that's perhaps, in, in actually as it turns out, biblically in, indeed unfair and then uh, all the more inspiring as they put their trust in the Lord. That's what we have going on here, by the way, in, in, in uh, kind of the first point that is being delivered is the tension that perhaps do they have something against them. But yet they're described as righteous and they're described as coming from this priestly clan. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, uh, the A of all of this. Let's see if this thing works. Uh, the second thing that is discussed is Zechariah going into the temple to perform his duties. And by the way, there's a big crowd as he goes in. C, or thirdly, you have Gabriel assuring Zechariah that the Lord has heard him. 
And now we get to the center part of this. What is the central part of this? The commission of John. What it is that John is called to do. I'll discuss that more in a moment. Then backing out again from this as, as this passage progresses. Now you have Gabriel telling Zechariah that he will not be heard. And see the kind of the, the mirror image that's starting to develop here, right? And then after that, you have the crowd outside the temple wondering about Zechariah's service in the temple. And then finally, as you would expect looking at the A, you have Elizabeth with child with the same phrase in these days. In the beginning, in those days, she was without child. In these days, she is now going to be with child. And so you see this kind of mirror image, and at the heart of it is where we can find the, the oomph or emphasis of what God wants to bring home for us. All right, so for those of you who endured that, that part is over, and wake up. Time for the, the, the kernel of the lesson. Here we go. Main point. Let's do this thing. God wants you back. That's what this is about. That's what all of this kind of arranging by God is all about. Why John? Why the fulfillment? Why Jesus? Why all of this? Why does he go to these great lengths? Because we have a God who looks down on the people that he has called and with all that he has, he communicates to us through his word and through the lives of his very own son and his own servants and his prophets, with all that he has, he screams to us, I want you back. And where are you right now that you need to come back? I've had to do some soul searching as I've looked at this passage. I need to look at what my prayer life is like now versus what it has been like when I knew that my goodness, I have a walk with the Lord that is my delight. And that delights the Lord as well. That my thirst for His Word. That you'd have to pull me from my Bible. That you'd have to, you'd, you'd have to actually kind of try to find a way to distract me. Rather than just simply put a flashing number three in my email box to distract me. To be able to get me from that. I need to get back. I need to get back to where it was that God enjoyed that intimacy with me as I walked with Him. And my goodness, the lengths that God goes to to want us back. But here He was with His people Israel and He recognized that He will bring back, but not all, but He will bring back many. And only many, but not all. My goodness, let it be as we sit here that we all are part of the many. And he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to prepare people for the day of the Lord. That's what it was in Malachi as well. The day of the Lord is coming. It's really coming our way. Is all matters at a much more grand cosmic scale than we can begin to appreciate. All of this counts for something. We're not just a bunch of people playing some sort of house, social organization, by which we try to be a bit more empathic or kind or serving. No, we are getting ready for the very appearance of Jesus. And when he comes next time, it's not for 
the intervention of sins, it's to sort it all on out. And, am I, and I know we're not saved by our, by our works in this case, but let it be that our faith is a faith that is really exemplified by a loving life for the sake of Christ. But what, what might it be? Is there, is there something that you've become cavalier with? Is there some level of worldly filth that has somehow become comfortable in your life? This is what God is making every effort to interrupt, intervene, and give us the wake-up call and shake us on up. He sends a prophet in John. A prophet that is not afraid to say, you bunch of snakes. That's how John begins his preaching. You bunch of snakes who warned you to flee from the day of the Lord. Repent. Turn back to the Lord. You know where God wants you. What do you need to do to get back to that place? And you know if you do it, there's only delight waiting for you. But there's a little bit of friction between where we are and where God wants us to be. Less friction than we think. Maybe, ah, I don't know, internet service. Really? Is it really that much friction? If that internet service is what's taking you down a dark, filthy path, of self-indulgence, fleshly indulgence. Is it really worth it? Really worth it to have that indulgence? And is it really desirous to want to have that kind of darkness? If, if that's what it is. Why not? Why not just make the efforts of what it is to turn from that and turn to Jesus? Turn to the Lord and know the delight. Nobody after having turned ever comes away saying, oh my goodness, I really did clean, clean things up in my life. And, and my faith is, is actually more in alignment now with what Jesus wants. And oh, I don't know. I just feel so empty and nasty right now. Nobody says that. They're like, wow, this is great. I mean, you know, you have to like contain them when you're sitting down to have a, a cup of coffee with them. Like, hey, could you, you know, I appreciate yours, but you don't have to shout. I mean, the guy, at, you know, it's a Starbucks. He's like two inches from you. I, I mean, but I mean, that's what everybody's like when they turn back to the Lord. That's what awaits every one of us when we make a serious decision to turn. It's, it's not like some dog coming back with a newspaper coming to his nose. The newspaper may be coming to our nose in a lot of different ways in our lives right now. A real deep sense of, of emptiness and despair. A real deep sense of disconnect from all things pure and beautiful and eternal. I mean, that's, that's the newspaper to the nose. But rearranging our lives back in alignment with Jesus, that's nothing but joy. Over and over again. We got we to gotta think it through. What is, what is the one thing? It'll be a final question. But what is the one thing that definitely would happen if you made a turn by which John the Baptist himself would say, whoa, that guy George, man, he turned to the Lord. Let me tell you about that. Wow. Corral, look at that. Turning to the Lord. Look what's going on in her life. Sharon, my goodness, that was a, you know, as, as, we, as we think about that, what would it be for John the Baptist to be able to look at us and say, wow, they seem to be apathetic, they seem to be resistant, 
but they did. Look at the difference. Look at the people that they're reaching for Jesus right now. Look at the difference they're making in their families by the way that they've changed their priorities. Look at the radical fulfillment that just wells up from their heart because of the depth of their prayer life and their um, appreciation and adherence to Scripture that goes on right now. Look at the peace they have because they live transparent lives rather than lives that are, that are duplicitous. One way here, one way another. Look at the peace that just washes over them right now. How, how easy would it be for John the Baptist to say, show me the fruit of your repentance. When we get after the very thing that God wants us to get after, it'll be obvious and beautiful and refreshing. But you know, it's not just in this passage that God wants individuals back. He wants his people back. And we as a church, we as a community of Christ, just as Israel was a community of Christ, it's time for us to take a look as well at what it is that we need to do. What is it we need to do and to be communally. And you know what it is, bottom line? We need to have higher expectations of one another. We need to just simply recalibrate faithful expectations that we will align ourselves with what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, what it is to live for Jesus Christ, what it is to rearrange all of our ambitions and allegiances and affections and agendas and alliances all in alignment with Jesus Christ and expect nothing less and to be alarmed at anything less. In a, in a compassionate, beautiful, alarming way, a godly sorrow alarm that either in our own lives or anybody else's life that we would somehow accept righteousness minus something but that we would get after only the beauty of righteousness in the Lord. And that we practice these faithful expectations. We decide to be in one another's life. We decide to know how it is that we're doing. I know that we do in, in a great degree, and we're rather good at that, but sometimes we can just kind of get together and just kind of talk reactionary rather than really think through, let's really be the light that God wants. It's actually God's will. Nothing less than God's will that we are to be His light and to make that great of a difference. And in conclusion, let me just ask you, as far as it just depends on you personally, what changes today for you to be able to say that, yes, I turn to the Lord? What happens today? How does tomorrow morning look different? How's your week set up differently if that one thing really does happen. Well, in the spirit of us turning, make sure that you talk to somebody, somebody, before today is out, of what that one thing will be that is going to be different so that what God has so worked and so arranged so that we had every opportunity to turn back to Him, that this is not going to fall to the ground. At least as far as it depends on us. That we're going to be a people, as we look at the gospel that God has given us, that we don't look at it just as something interesting, but something that really is meant to apply and to shape our very lives, individually and communally, as the Hampton Roads Church. Thank you. Amen.